This is a Rooster Teeth production. On Christmas Eve in 1945, a family's home was destroyed by a fire with five of their children still inside. However, their bodies were never recovered and soon people claimed that they had seen these children alive and well around the area. Today, we discuss what we know about the Sodder children disappearance. This is Red Web. Welcome back to another Mystery Monday. I'm Trevor Collins. With me as always, Alfredo Diaz coming in blind with the gut check. Ooh, this sounds like a spooky one. Yeah. I don't like it. Oh, hell no. We got to start right away with the gut check. You know, this is a true crime one. We have we have some uh, some real people in play. So far, nothing like aliens flying in just yet. But how are you feeling on this one, you know? Yeah, this seems like supernatural stuff, though. Ghosts and uh, ghouls and whatnot. But I, I, I think, like, for me... Mm-hmm. It's going to be like what pieces of evidence are there right. to kind of make me second guess that this isn't something that's just, you know, hearsay. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? We like to like stir your brain up a little bit when we figure out these episodes and, yeah, and yeah. schedule them out. You know, we want to keep the the variety coming. And we're coming on the end of a, of a couple kind of more supernatural ones, some cryptids and stuff like that. So this one's, you know, a little change of pace kind of pull your mind into a different direction but but yeah we're going to dive into this one and I'm going to break it down into a few sections to kind of distill all the information so we're going to talk about the father George Sauter kind of his background just a mm-hmm. little bit to give you some context and then we're going to go into the incident and then the investigation thereafter before wrapping up as always with the theories now before we get started I do want to say because I'm still super excited about this we have the task force merch coming on April 6 just wanted to give it a shout out here at the top yeah! of the show it's, I gotta be honest, the designers, ooh, that was me kissing my fingers, chef's kiss. I didn't, you know, kiss him on the cheek or anything. I'm, I'm really excited about this merch. It's clean. You know, yes, it's, it's, it's merch, but I mean, like, I don't know, you know, it, it looks clean, but on top of that, this is something, Trevor, that we just, that whole task force, right? It's yeah. something we randomly, like, just fumbled threw into. out there we fumbled into <laughs> it there was no plan it just like oh man you know it just came to our minds and yeah. then uh you the audience grabbed it ran with it and and now we it became it's becoming this bigger thing so that's why we're so excited mm-hmm. it's just so cool to see something like it's just so stupid that we said we that we have a task force and now everyone's like i'm behind you guys you know what? let's do I'm this a member. <laughs> I'm in it. we're gonna figure it out together dude how did y'all let this happen <laughs> well you got that and then we also like i think at some point we need to come up with some i don't know like a pamphlet maybe eventually we'll get our way <laughs> to a task force we'll get pamphlet. our way to a book you but, you know, like we got mysteries? all of our words that we like. You know, we got the, the Trevor phrases and the Alfredo phrases. and Oh, yeah. You know, anyway. Yeah. So thank you guys very much for digging into what we got going on here. Appreciate it. And if you want to support us, that's when it's coming. We'll uh, we'll leak out some photos uh, as that date approaches on our Twitter page at Red Web Pod. But with that aside, let's dive into this one. So George Sauter was born in Italy in 1895 to the name of Giorgio Sadu. So originally his name was of an Italian descent and now he's changed it since to a more Americanized version of that name. At 13 years old, he immigrated to the United States and refused to talk about his time in Italy or why he left. His brother also traveled with him 
but returned back to Italy after George passed through Ellis Island due to being homesick. George later found work on railroads in Pennsylvania, then moved to West Virginia to work as a taxi driver. Later, he started his own trucking company, and it was very successful at that time, and he eventually then settled in Fayetteville, which is where this whole incident goes down, with his wife Jenny, and they had their first child in 1923. Now, the area of Fayetteville, where the Sodders had lived, actually had a small Italian community, and uh, they actually became prominent in that area, just as another Italian family, but also as a budding entrepreneur in the area, with his business becoming pretty well known. And George was also very outspoken in that community about his opinions, particularly about his opinions and dislike for Benito Mussolini. So it's a very politically charged time. This could be perhaps why he left Italy, but this will come back later. Apparently, he got into many heated arguments with people about these opinions. As you can imagine, political arguments still maintain to this day. But uh, that's our background on George Sauter. Let's dive into the fire and what happened on that evening. Now we come up to 1945. The Sauters lived in Fayetteville, West Virginia, and they had 10 total children. So they have a lot of kids kicking around. Wow. Yeah. Damn, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> they got a lot of kids rolling like, in. Some people like big families. <laughs> oh my God. I say it's because I'm raising a, a, a pup right now. I can't imagine uh-huh. raising like 10 kids. <laughs> that's so they got 10, yeah, 10 kids from a whole, you know, a wide birth of ages going on here. So 10 kids, December 24th, 1945. The children stayed up. They were very excited about Christmas. All is normal. All is well. There's no reason to think that anything is wrong or that anything is afoot. However, later that night at 1.30 a.m., George and Jenny Sauter both woke up to their house in flames. They were able to wake up and save four of their children, John, who was 23, Marion, who was 17, George, who was 16, and Sylvia, who was two. It just so happened that the second oldest son was away serving in the military. However, the other five children slept on the second floor and they were split between two different bedrooms, one for the boys and one for the girls. Upon going outside, obviously they're calling out for their children. They didn't really get any response from them and they weren't outside already. They just basically didn't know where they were if they weren't in the house. That's just terrifying. Like, I can't imagine. Oh God. Like, first and foremost, the, the whole, like, Oh, man. I mean, we had the whole cold storm here and I had to worry about like pipes bursting like many others. Mm -hmm. And one of my neighbors, their pipes burst and it was just dunking water into their house for like six hours before the fire department came. So I can't even imagine like dealing with that kind of disaster in your house and trying to recover all that together. That being said, that stuff can be replaced. But like. But people. Family. Right. Like if it. It happens to your family. It's just like, okay, you know, grab the wife, grab the the, the kids, the dog. But like, mm-hmm. what do you do when you have that many kids? Right. Well, it turns out, you know, they went outside. They're, they're panicking. They don't see all of their kids. They, they managed to get all the kids that slept on the first floor, thankfully. Right. They get them outside. They're safe. Now, George, upon looking back at the house, doesn't see his other kids. They're not responsive. They're not, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know where they are. So you would assume that they're upstairs. So he goes back inside to see if he can save them. But the staircase at this point was fully engulfed in flames. So he's like, all right, plan B. Goes around the side of the house to get his ladder where he always keeps it so he can maybe get to the window, maybe rescue them that way or or something. But the ladder's missing. It's not in its normal spot where he always keeps it. So then George goes, okay, plan C. How do I, what am I gonna do here? He's got two trucks. He's like, all right, maybe I'll pull the truck up next to the house, climb on top of the truck, be able to get in that way. Mm -hmm. Odds would have it, 
neither truck would start. So immediately we got red flags flying off the wazoo. You know, you, you got the, the ladder. Okay, so this isn't in the middle of nowhere, but it's also not in like suburbia, a neighborhood. You know, this is, uh, as I'm familiar with in Indiana, this is like, you can see your neighbor's house, not super far away, but also you got some, you know, you got some comfortable distance. Now you got your two trucks in your, in your ladder, your trusty ladder, where you'd normally keep it. Things are afoot. Your ladder's gone, your trucks don't start. It's weird. So, I mean, I mean, Jesus, who did they, who did they piss off? Like, well, right. Yeah. I mean, like that's the question. Here. It, it feels like something's up already. That's way too many coincidences. It's way too many. And let, let me just go ahead and give you one more before we continue. No, at this point, they're like, all right, we need to call the fire department. We need to, we need to get them here now because clearly this is getting out of control. The whole house is going to go down. Our family's still in there, but the phone doesn't work. So Marion, the eldest daughter, right? She runs to the neighbor's home to use their phone. Can't get an operator. She runs to another neighbor's house. Still can't get an answer. As luck would have it though, that second neighbor then drove into town themselves to see if they could get some help. And they were able to find the fire chief, F.J. Morris, and alerted him to the fire. Now, this is about two and a half miles away where this fire department is, from the home, from the solder home but they didn't arrive until 8 a.m. on Christmas morning. Remember, the fire started somewhere between 1 and 1.30. When they woke up at 1.30, their house is ablaze. We are at 8 o'clock now when the fire department arrives. That's so long. It's, like, it's very long. In fact, what? the fire was, it stopped burning 45 minutes after it started. The house essentially was donezo. Yeah, I was about collapsed. to ask, like, how long until the fire stops burning? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, that probably depends on the materials and whatnot that your house is built out of. But that's so long. Like, that's what a crazy long response time. Yeah. And I mean, on one hand, you got to know that, like, it's Christmas Eve. It's and I'll yeah. get more into maybe the delays therein. I don't want to say that that is a piece of evidence as to something being afoot here. But it is unfortunate, and it is a piece of evidence that goes into this case. But we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more in the theories section with more details as to what might have been going on there. But yeah, I mean, the fire fully stopped burning 45 minutes after it started. There were various other buildings on the property, you know, like a little hut over there, like a little shed, I should mm. say, or whatever. And they're untouched by the fire because either the wind didn't carry it or they weren't set ablaze for some reason. But before George could go back in the home, to look for his kids, look for, for anything, any sign of foul play or the cause or what have you, the house collapsed. At this point, the five children were assumed dead by 10 a.m. that morning. Wait, five? All five of them, yeah, <sighs> that slept upstairs. They were assumed dead by 10 a.m. And the firefighters, though, oddly enough, could not find their remains in the ashes of the house. Now, Morris, the, the fire chief, believed that the temperature might have been high enough to cremate the bodies. But there's there's a little bit of uh, wiggle room. That's what that. I was about to say. I was I was going to say, like, even if they un met that unfortunate end, fire would have to get really, really hot to, like, burn down the bone and everything. Real hot and uh, and burn for a while. Yeah. Oh, God. But yeah, we're just diving through, you know, kind of the incident that night. We'll go into the the minutia a little bit more in the next section here. But yeah, I mean, whew, a lot. Heavy. Heavy Christmas going on right here. This is 
not what you want on a on a Christmas day. Oh God, no. For sure, but oh, like it's just it's really hard to like fathom all of this, right? Because it's not just I lost a child or two, which mm -hmm. just sounds so tragic, but. When you have 10 kids and you lost five of them, right? Like, how do you even cope with that? I don't know how you process that. Exactly. Like, how do you process that? You're, it's so difficult to cope with the loss of a single child, let alone five. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know where you go from that. I really don't. In a time where things are supposed to be happy, you don't expect this to happen. Just like, Ugh, anyway, I don't, yeah. I don't you know. Is it, is it too early to ask what, what caused the fire? Do we, will we eventually know? That's a part of the theories. Got it. That's um, what because, I yeah. yeah, and so we'll dive into that for in, in just a second. But to, just to wrap up what happened in the incident here, four days after the house collapsed, you know, George is feeling very emotional and he actually bulldozes what is left of the house. Okay, the, the basement's still there because basically the whole wooden part of the house is all burned down, the basement foundation's still there. He bulldozes all of that with dirt to cover it up, essentially to create a memorial for his children. He's feeling very emotionally wrought, I can totally understand all of this, but he did this despite being told to leave the site untouched so that the state fire marshal could get there and investigate. Now, uh, this is what probably mm. led this to being a mystery because it really, buried anything that could be looked at. It, it, it messed with the site in a way that can't be undone. And the next day, after this whole thing went down, a jury was gathered with the local coroner and the fire was attributed to a faulty wiring situation. That something was wrong with the wiring and there was a short in the circuits and that sparked the fire that took the house down. God. But also at the same time, so the dad bulldozed the house down. I can see the father doing that mm -hmm. um, out of just pure emotion. Maybe it's rage, anger, whatever. Um, also, there's the flip side because this is a conspiracy podcast. You know what I'm saying? So, like, is it a cover up, that type of thing? Like, what was George up to? But, like, who let this man get into a bulldozer or hire someone and then just let that happen? I, I don't know what's going on in this town. They can't get operators, can't get a fire department out to save their life. True, like literally. They they got a man bulldo like where's this bulldozer coming from? They're just out here, 1945, kicking around doing whatever. That takes time and effort. Like a what yeah. I mean, at that point, right? It's just like you don't have the right to do that. There's an investigation, possible murder or mm -hmm. something like that. Like some I foul don't, play, know. you know? Yeah. Especially. And I know I'm burying the lead, but especially with what's to come, with what information I'm going to tell you, this is a very interesting act. Oh, damn. Now, I'm not trying to throw George under the bus. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to go that way, but it's still very interesting. And, and you raise a good point, the planning. I don't think if I was determined that I could get a bulldozer to my front yard today or in the next four days. So it makes and and you know he's got a trucking business and and this you know they're in farmland so it's it's a bit different. But if I wanted to rent a bulldozer and do something crazy with it, you know like burying a crime scene, yep. I'd have to be thinking about this pretty quickly after this event in order to get it four days away. I don't know. I don't want to split hairs, but that's just you know you do raise a good point with that the planning part. Now to close this incident, I do want to say on December thirtieth, five death certificates were officially issued for the five children. Maurice, who was 14, 
Martha, who was 12, Louis, who was nine, Jenny, who was eight, and Betty, who was only five. As time passed, however, the Sauter family began to doubt if their children had actually died in the fire after all. In fact, they believed that their children had actually been kidnapped. And there's a couple pieces of evidence, anecdotal stories, you know, whatever, that go to lend itself to that narrative. And this is where we dive into the investigation and the rumors that followed the news articles that came out about this. Now, going back to the source of the fire being faulty wiring, now, it's strange to say that it was because of faulty wiring because during the fire and prior to the fire, the electricity was working just fine. In fact, people were saying that the lights were on as the fire was blazing and George had had somebody come over recently, oddly enough, to check on the wiring and make sure it was up to code, that there were no issues. I don't know exactly why um, you that out of the blue, he had somebody come out and check on the wires, but he did. Somebody came out and they said the wiring was fine. That it was all in working order. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. You got mm. the ladder. The ladder was found, you know, it was along the house is where he normally kept it. It was found at the bottom of a hill, about 75 feet away from the house, and no one really knows who put it there, why it was put there. Perhaps it was in a ditch because it was easier to hide. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> like a, like, it can't be. It can't be the bag. This is, this is the dumbest set up you know what i mean like throw the ladder 70 mm-hmm. like just within distance and then and then pretend to go grab the ladder and uh like that would be such a i mean people have done dumber things yeah but that's just i don't know I, like that's you just, you're setting yourself up at that point oh, having yeah. someone come check the wiring and stuff like that and you couldn't right. be more obvious if you're so yeah i mean we're honestly, we're not really going to head this way, but I do want to keep that on the table because Daddy George has got some like, I don't know, it, things line up in a weird way. And I, it's really hard to say because this could easily just be a grieving man uh, with coincidences. I think the crazy thing is that we haven't even gone to the point of like people seeing these kids that, you know, supposedly passed away. Mm-hmm. But then oh, we're again, getting at the there. same time. Yeah, we're getting there. But also at the same time. We don't know if they really passed away because we didn't find any remains or anything like that. Exactly. So, so maybe they are alive somewhere, but then why would they die and then be kept this, uh, hidden a secret? Ah! I don't know. Okay, let's go. And, and, and then if the father is involved in some way, what would the motive be? And, yeah, why would, and like motive? you said, why would he be so clumsy as to have all of his solutions be things that he kind of like, oh, I undid the spark plugs, I threw the ladder down the hill, and I, you know, and I tweaked the wiring. Like, it all seems very... I don't know, just so, mm-hmm. just like everything in order. But the other thing, they were told by a phone repair person that the phone line had not been in fact burned in the fire, but rather that it was cut. And it was cut at the pole. So someone had to climb up the 14 foot pole, reach up an additional two feet and cut the wire there. And perhaps that's what the ladder was used for. Perhaps that's why the ladder was 45 feet away. I don't know if it was near this pole, but the fact that the, the phone line was cut I, 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 oh man, I really can't believe it's the dad simply off of the point of the fact that this is, this is the dumbest, like, there's so many like pieces of evidence just left a mess, a mess, a pure well, mess. You, who would have known what he would have uncovered if he didn't bulldoze the rest of the crime scene, you know? Like, maybe yeah. there was something else to be found, but also maybe not. You, I, I don't know. Now, one other interesting piece of evidence 
Neighbors claimed that they saw someone stealing a block and tackle. A block and tackle is essentially one of those winches that you might use to work on a car and install the engine, if you've seen those. Essentially looks like a, a pulley system with a hook used for mechanical advantage, lift heavy things. But now what's funny is that this person turned themselves in for that theft. And they said they were the ones that cut the phone line, but they actually intended to cut the power line. Now, two questions come to my mind is, one, what do you think is going to happen when you touch that wire? Okay, I don't know what you're cutting it with. Yeah. And two, let's be real. If you're outside stealing a, a block and tackle, what's cutting that power line going to do? Really? I mean, it's not going to stop Betty from down the street, like, seeing you. Yep. And... That's a long climb. It's a long climb. I, I don't know. This... I don't know if this is a red herring or if this is just happenstance that kind of falls into things or if or if this is related, but it's, uh, it certainly throws a wrench into things. This person also, by the way, denied clearly having to do anything with the fire. Meanwhile, they're turning themselves in for stealing this block and tackle. So, you know, it's up to you if you want to believe them all the way, but I want to outline a couple of extra odd instances that happened that night that we haven't discussed just yet that really start to lay the groundwork for exactly why the Sodders believe this to be more of a kidnapping or some other situation like an intentional fire rather than just pure accident. So first and foremost is Jenny waking up to a phone call that night before the fire went off and she went downstairs to answer it. When she answered the phone, there was a woman on the other end asking for an unknown person or at least a person that the Sodders weren't aware of. And in the background, Jenny could hear laughter and clinking glasses and she said that the caller had a weird laugh. And she told the person that they had the wrong number and then hung up, going back upstairs, going back to bed. And then 30 minutes later, Jenny woke up to the sound of something hitting the roof and it rolling off. And so now we have a bunch of like weird, weird occurrences happening in the night. Not to mention the fact that she's answering a phone when the phone line was apparently cut after the fire. So somewhere between the 1230 or so time frame that she answered the phone and the fire happening, Someone climbed up the pole and cut the phone line. And so this really starts to feel like something is happening intentionally, that someone has orchestrated this whole thing. So then either the timeline is off or the wife has also lost her mind. Like what? Because like nothing up to, until this point has thrown any kind of suspicion or anything odd that the wife has really been doing or has done mm -hmm. or has given me a sense that you know, she might be a little out of her, her mind. I don't know, man. That's just the weird, just keeps getting weirder with us. Yeah. Thing. And I guess like when I, when I hear this and I hear that something hit the roof and then rolled off it, it almost makes me think of like, maybe someone chucked a Molotov cocktail, except the glass was too thick and it just kind of clank and then rolled off the roof. And then, you know, some poor pyro is like, ah, dang it. Didn't, didn't break like in the movies. But then the, you know, the fire still took off. I, I don't really know exactly what to make of this. And and we'll get into the to this part during the theories to try to to try to piece it together as to what might have been going on with the phone call, what might have been going on with the knocking around on the roof. Uh, perhaps somebody was climbing up there and dropped something by accident, and that's why the ladder was moved around. I don't know, man. Yeah. So we know for sure. Like we know for sure that the phone line was cut during that time. I mean, the ref the phone repair person is like, listen, this line is cut. It's cut at the at the pole. It isn't burned. So, I mean, that's what we got. That's what we're going off of. Yeah, yeah. And so that makes the fact that there's a phone call right before everything 
little bit sketchy, especially when someone's on the other side clinking and laughing with a weird laugh. I don't know, giggling like Elmo or something. Like, it, it's, <laughs> I, th- this is just weird. And we've only scratched the surface. There's still some more just things that don't line up about what's going on here that continue to kind of build the case of this being a kidnapping of some sort or basically the disappearance of these kids rather than an unfortunate fire that simply took hold of this family. The other piece that kind of builds into this, or one of the other pieces I should say, is when they went to the local crematorium, they asked one of the employees there about their process for cremating. And he says it takes about two hours and they use fire at 2000 degrees. And even still, despite it being hotter and longer than the house fire was, they still have bones that remain intact. So one would think that at this site, that you would have some sort of evidence, whether it be a few bone fragments or full skeletons or what have you, that there would be some sort of evidence that these kids were still in the house, but they didn't have any of that. Yeah, see, that's the that's the big thing when the fire department was just like, oh, I mean, the fire must have like burned all the evidence down or like all the, you know, evidence of the bodies away. And I'm like, well, I, I remember hearing a long, long time ago and, and often that it takes a really high uh, temp of fire to, in order to do that. And then mm-hmm. even then, there's still possibly bones that remain. And that's like an often thing. Like that's not something that's far-fetched. So right. to me, it's just like, why would the fire department just be like, ah, yeah, it burned hot enough? I mean, it's a, it's a good guess, like a good starting point for a theory. It is. If, but- because you're like, you, you want to think that there's no foul play, right? You come to the site, you're, you're a fireman. You're like, listen, see this often. Unfortunately, this is probably what happened. The house went down. And in this particular case, you know, you would assume because you have no other real evidence to go off of at this juncture to say kids must have been in there. But because we can't find what does Occam's razor say, if I can't find the bones, most likely, I guess they were cremated. Not most likely someone swooped in, cut the phone lines, hid the the ladder, killed the cars and then took the kids, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, there's a lot going on here, a lot to unpack. It's very confusing. I mean, there's a. So much coming from so many angles. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I like it's a thread that's easy to follow, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't make any damn sense. Well, let me get you to scoff and slam your notebook closed because you're going to think this case is boo, nailed shut because going back a few months into October of 1945, simply two months before the fire. A salesman by the name of Rosser Long had visited the home attempting to sell life insurance. That's not the only coincidence here. When George declined, he frustrated the salesman enough for the salesman to go and say, your house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. And he said this because of, quote, the dirty remarks that you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. So I don't know what to tell you, Weird. but if I'm George, I'm thinking, that's the guy. This guy's coming at me. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to pretend to sell you life insurance, this, that, or the other, whatever. But I'm mad at you because politically, you don't align with my beliefs. You, you're trash talking Mussolini. Yeah. I'm going to burn your house down. I'm going to, I'm going to hurt your family. It's a little extreme. But I mean, people are that crazy. Well, you know, you got to remember, this is a fascist uh, yeah. a coup d'etat that happened in Italy. So there are some strong feelings about what's going down over there. But, you know, and he's making loud opinions in this this Italian community. I don't know if that's enough to go burning down someone's house. But, I mean, when when someone's saying exactly what happens two months later, 
I, I gotta kind of be like, police, that's the man. Yep. That's our man. That's where your investigation starts. That's oh, where yeah. we send the task force. Mm-hmm. Knock on that person's door. Send the dogs in. Start asking questions. Send the gabu, you know. <laughs> off, off you go, little one. Send a little boo. Uh, but a few months before the incident, a stranger came looking for work at George's truck company. Now, this is another strange incident that happened prior to the whole event. Now, this person, when looking for, for work, noticed a bunch of fuse boxes on the back of George's house. And oddly enough, they said, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday, end quote. Now, I don't know if that was being prophetic I don't think that that was nefarious. I don't think that this person being a stranger had anything to do with saying, I'm going to light that on fire. But it is something that says, "Mm, maybe this is one of those guys that's like on the Mussolini side, or maybe this is just someone that's pointing out uh, some pretty gnarly wiring at your house. I don't know. But it is odd. You know, I I haven't, I don't know how many people come to my house, say my house is going to be on fire. And then two months later, it is. Yeah. Again, timing. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. weird i don't think the timing would add up like that but you know never know at this point we have a long string of oddities but another one that really stands out when the family looks back on this situation weeks before christmas a car was spotted by the older sons on the side of the road and the people in the car seemed to be watching the children as they walked home from school almost as if they were keeping tabs on them or seeing where they lived or seeing what their schedule was it was odd enough that the older sons remembered it. Now, this could be looking back on on their timeline and recasting the events leading up to this, you know, through a different lens now, thinking, oh, anyone could have been doing this. But I don't know. They're, they're out in the middle of nowhere a bit. Maybe someone was planning something. Maybe maybe he sparked something with this Mussolini conversation. Maybe he has something going on in Italy that he doesn't want to talk about. You know, maybe maybe you can't get away like the Corleones. You know, you seen That's Godfather? true. Yep. Yeah. Maybe this guy, woo, getting up to no good. <sighs> I, I mean, to me, already, even before all of this, it's like, I felt like someone orchestrated this whole catastrophe. But who was it, right? Who, like, who was it? Exactly. Who, yeah, who did this? Like, I, I mean, the salesman stands out like an obvious suspect. But, yeah. but everything, I mean, just everything, your gut says, boom, this is, this is intended. This is planned. Mm-hmm. But the the answers are arms reach. I just like, I, uh, ugh. it's just one of those ones. Just one of those frustrating, like so close. It's like which, like which line, like which string do I grab onto? Because they're, I don't know, they're in a, a whole bunch of different directions, and there's like misplays all over the place on this one. No one's doing anything right here. No, God, no. Bulldozing the crime scene, not a move. But what's interesting too is that later on, when visiting this now memorial, the site of the house, their daughter Sylvia actually found a rubber object in the yard, and George identified it or said that it was a napalm pineapple bomb. Now, this is a small bomb that would be dropped from planes in a cluster and could cause a fire, obviously. Jenny believed that this was the object that must have hit and rolled off of the roof that very night. Uh, that something, you know, that somebody chucked this cluster grenade to the house and that that's what sparked the fire. I mean, yeah, uh, right. Because, I mean, it's right there. It's something that, you know, where I love to use. It's tangible. It's there. Mm-hmm. You can you can see it. You can feel it. You know what it is. You know, it's what. What? Why else would it be there? Well, unless it's being misidentified. 
You know, this this yeah. could be anything, really, especially if you've got a trucking business. This could be something off of a truck. But you'd think George would know better. Why would George know how to identify a part of a napalm bomb? It, I don't know. It's just like, you feel like it's like, boom, evidence. Boom, get the FBI. But on the other hand, you're like, I don't know, though. Like, maybe the maybe the police are hands off because, like, it, it is more open and shut than we think. Maybe that... I don't know. That's true. Like, why would you know what that is? Yeah. George, man, I want to know this about <laughs> this man's Italian history. Like, there's something there. There's a, there's, there's a lot there. I'm just mm -hmm. like, uh, this, this person is a mystery in, in themselves. Oh, man, I'm cooking up my own theory on George now, but we'll we'll get into all that. Let's let's dive through the rest of this investigation. Yep. Hello, everybody. It's me again. Trevor Collins, I know you haven't had just a second of time away from me. I apologize, but hey, we're here between the mystery to do that little bit of housekeeping that we like to do. Just wanted to say, as always, thank you guys so much for listening to the show and for sharing the show. Word of mouth is literally the most important thing for a podcast. It's sharing it with friends who you think would enjoy mysteries like ours, but also, you know, reviewing us on Apple, liking us and subscribing to us on Spotify, etc., those all uh, mean a lot for the show and help us surface to new viewers and keep this show alive. So thank you very much for everything you guys have been doing to keep connected with us and staying in contact. And for all your feedback on social, always, always a treat to see what you guys are thinking about mysteries and what your personal theories are. But with that said, I do want to talk about a few sponsors we have for today. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by Candid. Unhappy with your smile? You don't have to be. Thousands of people have used Candid, the clear, comfortable, removable, and practically invisible aligners to help straighten their teeth, and now they love their smile. Just like Cameron S. from Nashville, Tennessee, whose life was completely changed by Candid. And that's their words, okay? Their life was completely changed by Candid. And Candid is here to help straighten your teeth as well, so you can fall in love with your smile too. The average candid treatment is just six months. You'll start to see results way before then, and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. I went to the candid website in order to use their quiz to figure out how I would best benefit from using candid. And they have a bunch of different angles they come from, whether you have crooked teeth, crowded teeth, discoloration, etc. So it's very easy to use. I was able to get through it in about 30 seconds. And then I was able to see if I qualified for candid. And it makes it a very easy and smooth process, especially to do from home. Become your best you. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, you can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. Go to candidco.com slash redweb and use code redweb. That's candidco.com slash redweb and use code redweb to let them know we sent you. Take advantage of this limited time offer and save $75 on your starter kit. Just a reminder, that's candidco.com. That's the letter C and the letter O. Dot com slash red web code red web save that dollar this episode of red web is also sponsored by final space calling all crew members the ship is preparing to take off keep an eye out for asteroids and black holes as olin rogers animated space adventure returns that's right final space season three is coming out for a smooth landing on saturday march 20th at 10 30 p.m eastern time only on adult swim Season three picks up right where things left off, bringing unexpected twists and turns as Gary and the crew enter final space to rescue Quinn. 
After discovering that they are now trapped in final space, the stakes get even higher as the crew must do whatever it takes to survive and desperately find a way home. The fate of the galaxy hangs in the balance. With Invictus and the Lord Commander hellbent on total annihilation and capturing Mooncake to harness his immense power, Gary and the crew's only hope is to team up with Earth's sole survivor. Will the crew be able to escape final space? Will Gary and Quinn pull their daring rescue attempt to save Avocado from the Lord Commander's clutches? Will the sudden appearance of a gigantic black hole be the end of Team Squad? You can't miss the season three premiere of Final Space on Saturday, March 20th at 10.30 p.m. only on Adult Swim. Not caught up? Well, you can stream seasons one and two on HBO Max right now or at the link in the description. Now, obviously, fueling the belief that their children were kidnapped were sightings, apparently, of the kids that were uh, sparked by the fact that photos were posted in newspapers. People could now recognize these kids and see them around. There was a woman who was watching the fire from the street, and she claimed that the children were seen in a car the very same night as the fire. And 50 miles away in a tourist shop, a woman claimed that she was serving the Sauter children breakfast the morning after. And she also claimed that the adults that they were with had Florida license plates. Now, two weeks later, after seeing their photographs in the newspaper, a woman claimed that she saw the children in a hotel in Charleston, South Carolina. So now it feels like whoever these people are have these kids and they're moving south down along the coast. And the timeline kind of works out that way. The direction works. The, the Florida plates kind of line up in that way. And this woman here at the hotel said, quote, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. AKA descent. But how do you cause, I feel like there's way easier ways to get a hold of someone's children than causing a fire and then trying to navigate around all of that. It's a big family too. Yeah. So how are you able to sit there with confidence and be like, I'm going to start this mm -hmm. fire at this house, at this location in order to cause a distraction to get these, you know, kids because also at that point it's like did you survey like was your surveillance so good that you know where they're located and then on top of that like you can't predict fire it's just such a sloppy plan it it really doesn't line up when you put the plan into action you know like the, all these odd instances definitely paint a story but you're right like something's off one last thing on the the hotel woman here is that she did try to interact with the children, and she said that the adults were quite hostile towards her. Basically, hey, don't talk to these kids, don't look at them, whatever. Now, when it comes to that night, you, you raise a good point. Why would they start a fire and then try to kidnap them during the fire? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what was really going on there. But when they're apparently, and this is if you can trust the eldest son, yeah. and that the, these people on the side of the road were in fact the same folks in play, why wouldn't you just kidnap them? when they're between school and the house. Why would you have to set the house on fire, jump into a burning house while the parents are definitely home, try to navigate getting kids out? How are the kids gonna go along with it? Cause they're relatively old. They're gonna make up fuss, you know, they're gonna talk, they're gonna scream or whatever. It's just, my mind is, is scrambled. It I don't- It seems so extreme and poorly planned. Yeah. Well, at this point, the Sodders contacted the FBI. The FBI, felt that the disappearance was more of a local matter, so they stayed hands off. At this point then, the Sodders decided to hire a private investigator named CeCe Tinsley, which let's be honest, 
I don't think I've heard a more 40s name in my life. C.C. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Tinsley. This guy's definitely got like a mid-Atlantic accent, you know, like uh, one of those one of those tan hats with the card in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like, the trench coat. I, I don't think I'll ever see or, or, or find someone with that kind of name. <laughs> I, I know, right? This is like straight out of a comic book. Yeah, no, 100%. I don't think I'll ever run into anyone in my lifetime with that name. Now, mm-hmm. I'm uh, granted now saying this, someone might be like, that's my name. <laughs> <laughs> no, not like, okay, not like CC, like CC's Pizza or Cecilia. No, I mean like the initials C and C. Mm. Tinsley. Like, C Tinsley. This guy's just like, call me C. Double C. Yeah, the. Tinsley. All right, now that's <laughs> just. Now it just doesn't. I'm thinking like CC's, like, yeah, like CC's Pete or something like that, but <laughs> like CC, like CEC, but just CC? Mm hmm. What? He's uh, he's always on the case, but he's always eating a slice of za, you know? He's. Mm, I see what happened here. <laughs> Does everything about this story have to be weird? I don't know, dude. I'm, if I'm honest with you and audience, I'm going to break the fourth wall a bit. This is probably the most scrambled I've ever been delivering the information of a case because it's just so odd. I can't string it all together because there's so many just one off odd circumstances in this one night. I, I can't put it together. You know, it just feels like yeah, there's this void surrounding this house. And if anyone gets close to it, there's like a requirement to just be weird. Yeah, well, you know what? The next point I have here is actually back in 1452, there was a cult sacrifice happened on this property. No, no, I don't, okay, I th- to, I don't know what's going like, on at this place. Damn. <laughs> yeah, this is where if this was a film, the prequel would come in, you know, the, the Annabelle rising and yeah. that it would go way back into the pilgrim times and be like, this is what happened at this yep. house. This is what sparked it. This, it has all the these same weird well. things that this... Mm. Uh, this ghost sparked. Yeah. yeah uh. But anyway, back on the real track, C.C. Tinsley's on the case. He's smacking on the za. And now George also contacts another person to help, a pathologist named Oscar Hunter. Now, these these two kind of go help investigate, try to, you know, C.C.'s off to find the kids to see if he can track down these, uh, these witnesses, people saying that they found the kids. And Oscar is investigating the site of the fire. Now, it is worth mentioning that this Oscar's not in play until August of 1949. So we are almost four full years after the case. So mark another tally down. You know, if you're playing the drinking game of odd things happening, well, God rest your soul, you're going to have a bad day today. But this is just another odd circumstance. That's so long. Yeah. How do you even discover anything? How do you... Well, how do you trust what you find? There's too uh too much room for error yeah too much time has passed like where do you where do you really even begin like oh man you you know how do you even you know you go to the place and you're not how do you find evidence right Mm -hmm. i mean i guess you're kind of hoping to see bones or something like that but so much time has passed yeah i uh i don't know like people you ask people questions and how are they expected to remember those uh, fine details right Well, Oscar Hunter, when investigating the site, he does in fact find a couple of vertebrae bones. However, these bones were sent to the Smithsonian to be studied by Marshall T. Newman, and they found that these bones would belong to a 16 to 17 year old male. But in their report, it is worth noting that they said, quote, it is however possible, although not probable, for a boy of 14 and a half years 
old to show 16 to 17 maturation, end quote. Essentially saying a younger boy could have vertebrae of this size, but it's not likely. The reason why that's important is because the son that would have passed away, the only person who was close to fitting this description, was 14 at the time, and that would be Maurice. So, uh, I, don't, I don't really know what to think on this one, and I do want to say pin this thought, pin this fact, because this could come back around later on in the episode, pin. but the last piece of information on those bones, there's no burn marks which you oh. would fully expect to find. Uh, just when you think you're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn it. Yep. <laughs> I, should, I should know at this point not to get baited by some no. of the things. No, you know these are unsolved, oh, mostly. <laughs> but these findings led to two different state hearings, and both of which were halted by the governor of West Virginia and the state police superintendent. They told the family that this case was hopeless and they squashed those state hearings, which, weird. Okay, first of all, it really feels like the government and the local assistants, all the way from the fire department to up to the governor, they're not helping out. Especially when the FBI is like, nah, this is their problem, this is local. And then local authorities are like, I don't know, man, good luck. Yeah, like, damn, the government just pretty much is like, oh man, roll over, play dead, don't even. Oh, God. Yeah. Especially, like, if you have an investigator that's like, I'm going to reopen this. I found some stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, here we go. Uh, New discovery in the case. It's unsolved. And then for it to be shut down by the authorities? Right. And I want to know more than just hopeless. I want to be like, no, those were planted. We don't think that this is actually what's happening. You know, like, say something else. Don't just go to the family and be like, you're hopeless. Bye, you know. It just seems so lazy. Right. Well, to add insult to injury, uh, a few years after the fire, George actually saw a photo from a New York school in the newspaper and thought that in that photo, he saw one of his own children, his daughter, Betty. So he was, you know, he was so convinced that he drove all the way up to New York to go to this school to demand to see the student, to see if this is in fact his daughter, and he is denied entry. As one might expect, uh, but nothing came of that. And despite everything, in 1952, the Sodders did not give up hope. They even made billboards in the area offering to pay upwards of $5,000 for anybody who could locate their children or have any information. They placed one of these billboards at their home and another along the highway for any passersby. These billboards ultimately just led to more sightings, whether they were lookalikes or the actual children, we may never know, but George followed up on every single one. Some of them led as far as Texas, right? We're, we're in West Virginia, where is where we're located at with the family. So to be all the way in Texas is like, at this point in time, that's scary, you know, to, yeah. to, to be thinking my kids are kidnapped, they're out there somewhere, they're, so, they're halfway across the country. But it's, it's unclear ultimately just how many sightings were reported in total. It, uh, it's just like one of those things where like, even if the, oh man, if the dad had nothing to do with it and he really just let emotions take over and then bulldoze the place down, mm-hmm. like, oh man, like I get it. You're emotional. You might've been angry at the place or something like that, but that's just, you, you just set everything back. Yeah. There's always going to be that what if thought, I would think. Yeah. And I mean, like the fact that they're chasing this down so thoroughly years after the fact kind of makes me think, I don't know. You know, it, it does feel odd. Why would you bulldoze the site, etc.? It makes me kind of 
recuse the father from any sort of guilt. I think, you know, it was an emotionally charged act of bulldozing, but it really kind of, in my mind, makes me think, all right, I don't think there's anything inside happening. It makes me feel truly that maybe it was a politically fueled in some way, the violence back in Italy with Mussolini or perhaps the mafia, that that's where it really came into play. And if the father was involved at all, that it would be that. And perhaps, and again, I'm just, I'm theorizing wildly now, but maybe there was like a guilt going with that. And maybe that's what fueled, I don't know, the fueled the the thorough search. I don't, it's just a wild case, a wild and emotional case. It really is. But the last thing I want to say here on sightings is that they had received a letter that was postmarked from central Kentucky, and it contained a picture of a man that very much resembled their son, Lewis, who would have been in his 30s at that time. Now, what's odd is on the back of this photo, it said, quote, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35, end quote. Frankie was the nickname that Lewis called Maurice. And the Sauters then hired another private investigator to locate Lewis in Central City. But they never returned, and they lost contact. The PI that they sent to Kentucky disappeared without a trace. It's thought that maybe the investigator ran off with the money, or that they were stopped by somebody. But we'll never know, because they disappeared into the night, never to be heard from again. And we'll never know if this was, in fact, their lost son, Louis, or Louis, or not. Or, or a fake or something. That's like so unfortunate. Yeah. So it's really gut-wrenching all the way to the end. And that's that's really all the facts that we know about the case, or at least without doing an extraordinarily deep dive. Those are, those are the facts about the case. And that leads us nicely to the theories section, which, as with some episodes of Red Web, the theories are pretty straightforward. In this case, we're going to digest between two different theories. Uh, the fact that this fire, on accident or not, was the cause of the of the unfortunate end of five children in this family. And then we have the other theory, which is that the children disappeared in that night, that they were kidnapped in some way, and that they were taken from their home regardless of the house being burned down or not. And so we're going to dive into both those theories, all the facts therein, and kind of uh, conclude with our thoughts on the matter. So let's dive into the two sides of this situation and see if we can't make heads or tails of, honestly the list of odd moves, odd events, odd circumstances, everything that's going on here, and see if we can't decipher between the two realities. Give me some. Give me some. Kind of give you something. So despite the many strange occurrences surrounding the fire, many believe the Sauter children did in fact pass away during the fire. Now, if the Sauter children were really kidnapped, some of them were too old at the time to go along with it in the way that the rumors were going around and that the rumored sightings were described just as a reminder of their ages. Maurice was the oldest of 14 and Betty was the youngest of five. And they were, you know, the ages therein. And that kind of makes sense, you know, if they were seen at a hotel that unless they were feeling scared or threatened or whatever, it some of the sightings, some of the ways that the kids were acting in these stories wouldn't really line up with their age, I should, I don't know. Uh, try to like cause a ruckus and... Yeah, like the 14 year old would probably try to get some help, maybe maybe some sign, unless they truly were that fearful. Yeah. But after two weeks of being kidnapped, you might start thinking, all right, I don't know if my end is nigh. And even if it is, I need to do something to help. Yeah, full send it. Right. Basically, 
without going into all the details, it doesn't seem that all of the sightings lined up exactly with with their ages or how children of that age would act. Yeah, was it just like, oh, they seemed happy and normal and when in reality they would, you know, be quiet and seem kind of like tamed and uh, non-responsive. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if they seem normal, if they seemed happy, that's certainly uh, a red flag for this not being a kidnapping, right? But there's also some sightings that kind of focus on the younger aspects of the kids. And that is another factor here that probably wouldn't align with, you know, well, one of the kids that's supposedly missing is 14. If you're all saying that they're about eight years old or whatever, you're either misidentifying it or you're not actually seeing the solder children. Now, a couple more pieces of evidence that kind of go towards this being just an unfortunate accident is that the five children all slept upstairs in two rooms. And it's totally possible that they came to the exposure of smoke, whether they suffocated or kept them unconscious through the fire, which kept them unresponsive in time for George to, to then try to find his way back in. Regardless of the situation, it's possible that they came to the exposure of the smoke. But the bodies, though. But the bodies, that's true. But the bodies. Now, regarding the bodies and going back to what the, the cremation employee was talking about, right? We we're talking about 2000 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. We're talking mm -hmm. about two hours, certainly outside the scope of this fire. But at the end of the day, that was for an adult body. Cremation can occur as low down as 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. And the time necessary to properly cremate somebody for a child doesn't need to be that two hours. So there's still plausible deniability within that. You know, if, if the fire uh. was burning just hot enough and for those 45 minutes, it is possible that the children were in fact cremated to an extent that finding bones or any evidence would be very difficult. Obviously compounded by the fact that the father bulldozed the site four days later. I just feel like the, you know, the authorities could have just even granted it would make life so much more difficult that it's bulldozed over, mm -hmm. but have a, you know, authorities should have a team go over it with a fine tooth and comb. Like, Absolutely. Just find the little, the little possible scraps and whatnot. It's in a concentrated area. And you know, it's like those bones that were found. I mean, that's totally possible that wh whether that was planted or not, that that's totally possible that those were just bones that didn't happen to get as badly burned, that they were just around and the rest of the bones that were burned became brittle and maybe got crushed in the bulldozing or got crushed when the house fell apart. It's really hard to say. And the Smithsonian coming forward and saying that this would be a 16 or 17 year old with the unlikely situation that it could be a 14 and a half year old. It's um, there's still enough room in there to be like, yeah, I know, you know? that's the thing. Just enough room. Just enough room to keep it open. And this is where I want to kind of go back now to the fire department. I know we talked about it being Christmas Eve and people probably being hunkered down with their families and, and sleeping with it being in the middle of the night. But it is worth noting that their delay could have been due to the fact that they were made up mostly by volunteers and they had a very low supply in general after World War II ended. And ultimately, when fire was reported at this point in time, firefighters had to call each other one by one in order to get together to go fight the fire. So all the circumstances kind of come forward to delay their response time. They had to all call each other on a holiday when it's in the middle of the night, when they're low staffed, just because of the circumstances of the time. There isn't necessarily anything nefarious about that. 
but it does exacerbate the fact that clues and evidence could have been found earlier if they were able to get there faster. True. I mean, obviously frustrating that it took so long and an extremely long time. Um, I would even go as far as saying a ridiculously long time. But I never, mm -hmm. I never expected any type of foul play in that particular like department. Yeah. If you did say that there's something there, that would have like really blown me away. Um, right. I would have been like, oh, here's another rabbit hole would go down and um, on this mystery. But yeah, it's worth mentioning just so. Uh, no, 100. No, for sure. There's nothing like we gotta uncover every stone. Just mostly because it seems like I agree. Every time we try to you know get in contact with the operator or talk to the fire department or get the FBI or local authorities involved, they all kind of seem to be, uh, I don't know, hands off. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, so it's worth turning up this stone to say, okay, what's going on with the fire department now? Okay, nothing crazy. Okay, that makes sense. The delay, unfortunate, but makes sense. Okay, yeah. we can put that rock back down. And this then leads into the fact, you know, obviously it's Christmas Eve, and so, you know, they were either celebrating or asleep. That could affect the fire department, but it also plays into the phone call that they received that night. Now, whether the line was cut or what have you, we can leave that for now, but the phone call... You know, it turns out the woman that had called that night claimed she genuinely had the wrong number. And the fact that there were laughs and clinking of glasses could still be a part of that Christmas Eve celebration. It could be that a lot of unfortunate coincidences happened that night that had nothing to do with the accident. But I, but it sounds like they got a hold of the woman and she said, no, I, I genuinely had the wrong number. And, uh... You know, maybe they, maybe it's like the guy on the side of the road. Once something crazy happens, something truly dark and unfortunate, maybe you just look back on some of these things with different, a different yeah. lens and you say, What about maybe? that moment? What about that moment? Yeah. Yeah. That was a question I had earlier, but I just totally forgot to ask was, yeah, why, you know, did they have the technology to track down that number? And if so, why not call it and figure out, you know? Yeah. I mean, good to know that, look, at this point we're, we're you know, we're, we're, kind of like uncovering all these stones and then going okay well this is what happened with this and this is what happened with that mm -hmm. which is nice that's some sense of like relief when it comes to this like crazy like <laughs> string of like events that happened yeah well the last piece that kind of goes into play here is the fact that the initial investigation was was poorly done it was considerably shoddy by modern standards and they had only searched the property for about two hours. And this could be exactly why George got fed up and bulldozed the site. He either A, trusted that the site was thoroughly searched as it, you know, he's leaving it up to the experts. And he said, well, they didn't find anything. I might as well make this into a memorial so I can stop looking at the pain. Or he was angry that they only took two hours to search for it because modern searches would take days or even weeks yeah. to really comb through the rubble there and try to find evidence. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But I mean, that's just another thing. Like if this was just an accident, this mishandling of the situation is what really cracked it open to people thinking, well, maybe something else is here. Maybe something else is going on because they didn't find anything. But I don't know. Maybe they would have found something if they looked a little, a little more thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's um, the unfortunate thing about a lot of these like mysteries, right? It just seemed like if there was just a this moment right here if it played out differently mm -hmm. then it could have blown everything wide open right well those are the pieces to the story that kind of go into saying hey i believe that this was just an accident that a fire unfortunately took this family but now let's let's take a look through the other lens that the children were kidnapped because many people 
also believe this, including the Sauters themselves, that the children were kidnapped on that night and that the fire was a way to distract from the kidnapping in some way, either to keep their focus back on the house and not down the street, or that the, the kidnapping happened during the fire or something therein. Going back to a couple of those instances we talked about earlier, you know, it was extremely strange for the ladder to be moved to such a random location, 45 feet away from the house down a hill, and to have both the phone and the cars not working, essentially every avenue for help was just taken. Yep. So it, it, it just, something in my gut says, there's something manual about that process. There's too many accidents, too many coincidences lining up, preventing them from being able to help themselves. It's the perfect storm. And I just, it's, it's in such a way where, where it's just like, how is this not orchestrated by man, you know? Mm-hmm. And going back to the Smithsonian and talking about those bones that were found at the site, you know, in their report, they also said, quote, one would expect to find full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae, end quote. Which makes sense. You know, if, you, if you're gonna find vertebrae, especially vertebrae that seem less burned and less brittle, that you would find something else. If not, you know, you know, this is where the crematorium kind of conversation comes back into play. And it sounds like the experts at the Smithsonian are saying, you would find more. I mean, even if they were bulldozed, I mean, coming back years later, you would find other pieces of, of bone there. Yeah, it'd still be there. Yeah, and so because of that, that just continues to say, well then, whose vertebrae are these? Were they planted? And where are my kids? And this is where we come back to the fire department now. The, the family thought that because of the unhelpfulness of the fire department, they believed that they were in or had something to do with covering it up. Now, I know both you and I, we're probably sitting here saying like, yeah, there's something fishy about that. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't personally say that they're probably trying to cover it up. I think it makes sense why there was delays. Not ideal, certainly, but the family certainly felt otherwise. And, and I don't necessarily I, I blame, don't blame them. them. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. Like at this point, you're just frustrated. You want answers. Things aren't going the right way. Mm -hmm. um, you're just slashing out at that point. Yep. FBI. Fayetteville police and fire departments, they all refused to assist in the investigation. The governor refused to help. And it's also uncertain as to why certain authorities were refusing to assist in the case. I mean, outside of saying it's hopeless. Uh, <laughs> what? I mean, Come it on. literally could be that, right? Or it's just like, it's unfortunately just that you have an answer. It's uh, yeah, you know, hopeless. Maybe they it feel is like it, it is, a, a, unfortunately, a waste of time, right? Where they, right. they don't think that anything's going to pop up. And it's a way of saying it, but... You know what? That's a really good point. The bedside manner is terrible, but the fact that we're even talking about this being post-World War II and the fact that we're struggling to get firemen and probably policemen at this time, if uh, resources are thin and you, and you got to make the judgment call, right, as a chief of police and say, this is worth our time because every man or woman that you send onto that case to focus on it is now away from a different case or preventing further crimes. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. <sighs> it's just, it's such a thing. You just don't want to ever hear that. But right. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's an unfortunate truth. Yeah. Now, regarding uh, the fire chief, this is where private investigator C.C. Tinsley comes back into play. Now, Tinsley heard that F.J. Morris, right, the fire chief, claimed that he had found a heart while investigating the site of the fire. First and foremost, how are you finding a nice and tender soft tissue heart and no bones? 
like the immediate red flag. Huh? But then also like, where's the heart? Like what? Anyway, he said that he found this heart and that he buried it in a box in order to give whoever it belonged to a proper burial. Now I'm sitting here going, you know, it's if it's a truth that you're saying right now, that it's one of the kids. And why didn't you tell the family? How did the private investigator need to come forward and find that out? And then Tinsley then said, well, all right, let me go find that. He dug up the box, brought it to a mortician, and the heart turned out to be beef liver. So F.J. Right. Morris okay. went through this whole rigmarole of saying he found a soft tissue organ at the, the scene of a fire. The whole body burned away except for the heart, went off to go bury it. He actually did that, but with beef liver, and then told a private investigator about it. I don't know what... What the what the motive is here? I don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah, what is the reasoning behind this? It's, well, I can tell you what he said. So Morris confessed that he placed the liver there because he believed finding remains would give the solders closure, and that they would stop searching for the children. That's messed up. It's messed up for sure. If this is a benign act, if this truly is what he's doing, I guess I can get it. You want some form of closure, otherwise this is going to go on forever. And so by kind of feigning finding something, you can say, hey, found something, this closes the case. I hope this can allow you to rest better knowing the, you know, knowing the outcome rather than what if or where at, you know. Mm -hmm. But man, if that isn't messed up, especially to go off and actually bury a piece of organ. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a little extreme. And like, it really is. I understand that you don't want the, you know, you kind of want to give the family like this sense of like relief and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm pretty bold. I don't know. I think it's pretty bold. I get like the authorities at this point don't want anything to do with it. They don't look it up. But one, that's just so weird, right? That's not, none of this is ever, everything from front to back here is just is not thought out right so many different pieces and different parts of this whole entire thing is just not thought out like one how is that still intact that doesn't make any damn sense mm -hmm. two obviously they're gonna run and investigate it and try and figure out like i i don't know. it's just so poorly thought out so many so many pieces here yeah well, this is what I'm about to get into is, for me, the crux of the issue. This is really what drags me into the kidnapped realm and away from the it was an unfortunate accident. I mean, I know that there's some some coincidences. It's hard to, like, look back on, on an accident and not recast what you heard or what you saw as, like, part of that accident. But I digress. I, I think that this next thing is, is really... There's something there, but anyway. Some believe that the Sauter family was in fact targeted because of how vocal George was about his dislike for Mussolini, especially because of the comments made by the life insurance salesman, because you know, those were incredibly on the nose. He's saying, I'm gonna burn your house. I don't know if he said, I am going to do it, but he said, your house is gonna go up in flames and it's gonna just destroy your children. That's pretty on the nose, especially yeah. when he then says, because yeah. you're talking crap about Mussolini. I mean, now check this part out. One of the members of the jury that determined that the fire was caused by faulty wiring was the very same life insurance salesman that approached the Sada residence and threatened to burn the home in anger. So if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know why that guy wasn't pulled from the jury. I don't know how that wasn't figured out. But you got the man who is probably at the source of anything that's going down here, if it's nefarious, on the jury saying, nah, we're good. 
faulty wiring. It was an accident. <laughs> yeah. Again, messy. I mean, there's just a, there's just a trend here with a lot of yeah. these like unsolved mysteries where it's just mm-hmm. things are poorly handled or just an outright mess. And right. It doesn't. It, uh, I gotta I gotta keep remembering what's with certain like conspiracies and mysteries and whatnot that common sense, I guess, just goes out the window. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's like what are the recipes for a, an unsolved mystery? And it's definitely a. A sprinkling of ignorance and a and a dousing of not paying attention and yeah and like a huge dash of just mishandling the scene. Oh man! Well, what's interesting too regarding Mussolini is that Jenny Henthorne, who was Sylvia's daughter, Sylvia being the youngest of the children, she was two at the time of this incident. Her daughter came forward to the podcast called Most Notorious. And she said that the fire might have been intended as a warning to George over his comments about Mussolini and not really something intended to harm anybody. That the phone call and the object hitting the roof could have been ways to get their attention, to wake them up, to make them leave. Because, hey, we want to get your attention. We want to scare you. We're not trying to kill you or your family. That's a whole other level. Yeah. And she also added that maybe the children were able to escape the fire, but saw something that they shouldn't have once they were outside. Maybe whoever was throwing something at the house and then maybe that's how they disappeared or were taken in some way it's truly hard to say it really really is but i mean look that is by far a possibility mm-hmm. um, but just we'll never know no we really, well we'll never know like right and because of you know george's refusal he refuses to speak on his life before immigrating you know some are saying that there was something else here something else in play whether he was You know, some people are going with the mafia connections, that there was some sort of motive for the fire via that, or some motive for the possible kidnapping because of the mafia connections. I mean, listen, there was a coup d'etat. That's how Mussolini got in power. And who's to say that George, perhaps the guy that changed his name to an American version of his Italian name, who's to say this guy wasn't also in politics in some way, that he wasn't fleeing the country from that, you know? Yeah. What ties? Yeah, there's too many, uh, too many loose threads here to really try to nail this down. But regardless, truly unfortunate all the way around. However you slice it, wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be honest, I can go either way. You know, I yeah, it's like the threats. As much as I just want to kind of like push them aside, like oh, just threats. It was the times, or, or you know, obviously just the angered people. It, they're just so accurate. They're so accurate. Right. It, I tell you, if I made a tweet about uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee burning uh, small puppy, mm. and then that happened, mm. I'm getting I'm, called on. I'm turning you in. You know what I'm You're saying? Turning me, I'm turning me in, first of all. Let's just be <laughs> real. I'm, a, I'm getting look, right in there. Point, I'm saying, I would have already turned myself wasn't in. Okay. Yeah. There will be no one. <laughs> Listen, guys, this was just a... It was an innocuous reference at the time. I didn't expect it you know, to come forth as a fruition. But hey, if you want the lottery numbers, I got you. I don't know, man. It's just how do you spell something out so plainly and then yeah. have that thing happen? I, and it's not just accidentally saying what happened. It's not just like coincidence, big shrug. It's just everything else around this is this is probably one of the most it's probably one of the simplest mysteries we've un- we've discussed, but also the most clouded. Yeah, I mean, it, it right. It wasn't there wasn't much complexity to this. Mm-hmm. 
at the same time, I felt like I was being pulled in so many different directions. Right. That kind of like didn't make sense. And I'll yeah. go back to saying what I said earlier. There is some relief in knowing that certain things like the phone call or the fire department taking so long. Like it doesn't really seem like there's any thing there. Yeah, in nothing terms foul of, play like. Right. Yeah. Any any type of foul foul play whatsoever. So there is some like relief there. It's cold comfort to say the least. But yeah, I don't know how something so simple could be yet so confusing. Yeah, and I mean, I guess when I really, really think about this as we come to a close, as I try to figure out personally how I feel about this case, I want to say that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that goes down in a, a situation like this, a scenario, an event, losing any family. I can't even imagine it. Losing five children is is probably gut wrenching. Again, to say the least, and to look back on that moment to figure out what could have been changed, what could I have done, what did I actually see, what was a part of this event, and what was just something that happened in nature. Like an acorn falling off the roof could now be become something else entirely, and you, and you want to recast the moment to figure out what's going on here, and you want to hope that they're still alive, and as dark as it is, by being kidnapped they would still be around somewhere. But anyway, I, I digress. The, the thing that really comes down to for me is that unless they met an unfortunate end after being kidnapped years later, I feel like as adults, they would have come forward in some way, you know, whether they would have admitted who they were, you know, because if they're 14, they're not going to forget, you know, that was a that was a passing thought that I had. Right. Yeah. Where if they were kidnapped, then at that point, they probably met an unfortunate end because I mean, like, what are you going to keep the person locked up for 20, 30 years? Right. Which even then is like, well, why are they then, you know, several states away two weeks later or potentially in Texas? It's then it becomes like, well, what is the, the end goal then? What yeah. What is the right, like, where do you go from there? Because right. like if you don't if you if you don't kill them, then they're just people that you take care of for and, and then you have to deal with like you know block keeping them locked down and quiet um for essentially the rest of their lives and then if you let them go like you're saying they are more than old enough uh incapable of you know coming out and being like hey this is this is what happened here i am wild case very wild case honestly task force we'd love to hear your thoughts we always do you know we we scratch the surface we're mystery enthusiasts we're not uh, you know, we're not the documentarians. We're not going to dive into all the nitty gritty as much as we'd want to. Um, you know, we do a lot of mysteries once every week. And, uh, so we always love hearing your thoughts when you hit us up on Twitter, you know, at Red Web Pod. If you go to roosterteeth.com, you can listen to this podcast, but there's also a comment section there. But however you listen to the podcast, thank you so much for listening and sharing. There's a lot of new, uh, listeners that we've had over the past few weeks that we've seen, and we really appreciate, uh... Your, your your thoughts on some of these cases. You guys come forward with a, got, a lot of theories that we might miss. And uh, maybe we'll tap on some of those with some update episodes here to come. But with that said, we will see you guys next week for another mystery. Mystery.